Welcome to the Metric Stack Podcast. Your hosts, Alan Villa and Lauren Thibodeau, will talk to founders, leaders, marketers, and more to uncover how they succeed with data. Whether you're struggling with data, reluctant to take the leap, or maybe you're a seasoned expert with years of experience, you'll hear stories from people like you who have used data to grow and scale their business. Mike Potter is the co-founder and CEO of Ottawa-based SaaS company Rewind. Before founding Rewind, he's worked in development, product management, and product marketing. He's also worked across companies of all sizes, including founding several other startups. He's held key roles at Halogen Software, which was acquired by Saba, and Adobe. And he's a busy man. Outside of being Rewind's fearless leader, he's a husband, father, sports lover, golfer, and, if that's not enough, coach for his kids' hockey and basketball teams. Mike, really glad that you could join us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Al. Great to be here. So I'll kick things off, Mike, with our, our first question. And, you know, I've heard, we've heard that Rewind was born from the kiss of death on your hard drive. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit about, like, how would you describe Rewind in a nutshell and what sparked your decision to kind of found this company? Yeah, so Rewind is a backup service for SaaS applications. It's a cloud-to-cloud backup service. We take the data from the popular SaaS applications that businesses are using. We copy that into our own cloud backup tool and allow people to restore it in case something happens to their data. Typically, you'll find problems when uh, human error, one of your employees causes a problem. Sometimes third-party apps cause a problem or importing CSV files also tends to be some of the times where people um, experience problems with their own data. And that really surprises most people that that a service like Rewind would be needed. You know, most people think it's in the cloud, it's all backed up, why would I need it? And the reality is, is that the cloud providers provide a backup solution for all of the data. So it's sort of like this all or nothing proposition. If the whole system goes down, absolutely they can recover the data without any problem. But if your account on that service has a problem, and just your account, their backup is not useful for you. They can't go into their backup and pull out the literal you know, needle in a haystack to restore just your data. And so that's the protection that Rewind provides is account level protection uh, for these SaaS applications. Now you started with Shopify. Tell us a little bit about the decision. Why did you start with Shopify? What, did, what was your early experience starting with a single service? Uh, what did you learn? And, and, and why did you then jump to the next one? And, and when did you jump to the next one? Yes, we started in Shopify in June of 2015. Uh, a friend of mine, James Shelsky, uh, we had worked together at another Ottawa startup actually called The Crew. Really enjoyed working with James, and in uh, in November of 2014, I'd actually approached him and said, "Hey, look, let's do something on the side. I wanted to sort of kick off a little side project with them." And so we started working on something that six months in, it was very clear that it was not going to be a success. We couldn't find any customers. We had built a bit of technology, but we had no customers. We had no go to market. We had no way of, of really growing a business. And so I I said, "Well, why don't we work on backups? I think you know I think backups would be a good idea." As Lauren mentioned, I've actually, you know, experienced backup problems myself, or not backup problems, but hard drive problems myself. And so I sort of went with that, with that approach that I looked at where I was spending my money and I was subscribing to the service called Backblaze to back up my home computers. I'm like, I'm never going to unsubscribe from that service. Like they've got me, they've got me basically for life. It is, you know, very inexpensive insurance just in case something happens. I've also got two hard drives on the floor here in my office that back up the computers. 
So I've actually got like a backup to my backup. And believe it or not, I've actually had to rely on that second backup because the first one didn't work as expected. So I was very fortunate to have that. Mike, of all the people, I would hope that you're the guy that is backing up the backups. <laughs> so I'm super glad to hear that you are doing the right thing. Yeah, that's exactly. awesome. Well, you got to have you know three copies of your data in two different locations on uh, on two different mediums, right? And so, and one of them has to be offsite. So when we looked at at sort of my own, or when I looked at my own spending, you know, I said, well, I think the churn rate on this backup product is going to be quite low. I, 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 that was sort of my hypothesis going into it. And since LTV was a function of churn, I'm like, even if you don't make a ton of revenue, I think the churn is going to be low enough that you can really build a pretty good business on this. And so that was sort of the hypothesis as to why we started a backups business in the first place. And when it came time to picking the first platform, obviously, you know, we're in Ottawa. Shopify was in, or is in Ottawa. I suppose they are still in Ottawa, although that now they're global. Um, and they were growing, you know, just incredibly fast, even five, six years ago. And so in 2015, I just looked around and I said, well, why don't we back up Shopify stores? Didn't really know if it was needed, to be honest. We had done a little bit of research in the forums and some people had been asking for it. We, you know, did a couple of Google searches and a few people had blogged about it. Shopify actually had written a help document that was, I think, 21 steps to back up your Shopify store. So we figured, well, if they've written a document about it, there's probably been some demand to have this backed up. And we we just went and, and launched it. That was June of 2015. When we first launched it, it was free. We didn't We didn't charge. We just wanted to see if people had the problem. And sure enough, that December, one of our customers lost their entire store from a third-party integration. And in January of 2016, we started charging. And, and we grew the business from there. So just, just to sort of paint a picture, so and, and I'm a fan of this approach. At the time, you're bootstrapped. Paint me a picture. How many employees did you have? Where were, where were you working? How were you putting food on the table? So those first six months, we were, it was just James and I, from June 2015, or when we started working maybe in April or May, to December of 2015, it was just the two of us sort of hacking away at it. We both had full-time jobs. I was working, I believe I was working at Signiant at the time, and he was working at a, at a company in Canada that I can't remember the name of right now. He's going to kill me for that. <laughs> um, and so that was sort of the, the primary income was like, we kept our day jobs. And then in January, we started charging for the app after this customer had the problem, we started charging and we recruited two other friends, uh, Sean Mandigar and, and Julian Huff, who we had also worked with, or James had also worked with at a crew. So the four of us kind of knew each other to come on. And again, part-time nights and weekends, whenever you can do it. And they agreed. And I think one of the more sort of amazing things is that not only did they agree, but they actually put the effort in. Right? <laughs> I don't, like, when we started, there was a lot of people who volunteered their time and said, oh, I'd love to help out on this. And then when push came to shove, you know, they actually didn't, they didn't never followed through. Well, these two actually followed through. So the four of us continued working. I believe it was in June of that year when Big Commerce came to us and said, we see you built this backup app for Shopify. Our customers have the same problem. Can you build Rewind for big commerce? And we thought, well, this is great. Like we've already done one e-commerce platform. We know all about SaaS, e-commerce, app store, marketing, and stuff like that. We will build this. It'll be super easy. It's exactly the same go-to-market. That was incredibly naive. It, although they, the two companies kind of compete against each other, they're very different go-to-market tactics. They have very different customer bases very different numbers of customers. I think Shopify is up to like 1.7 million or something like that. And big commerce is in the tens of thousands. Um, so very different size of customers as well. 
but we, we built Rewind for BigCommerce and, and we sort of expanded on from there to add support for QuickBooks. We recently bought a company that does backups for GitHub. We launched support for backups for Trello and backups for Zendesk is coming with a vision to kind of back up all the rest of the cloud services that are out there. It's amazing, right? Because so many of the apps that you're backing up um, sort of are a mass market uh, type of approach which probably influences how you put a support team together or how you put a sales team together or what your cost of selling is. Um, did did big, big commerce sort of break that mold? Are you still doing that? Did you have to adjust for those kind of customers? Yeah, that's a good point. And yes, I think they sort of, the same tactics that we used in Shopify did not work in big commerce. Like we learned a couple of tricks or optimization techniques to get a higher ranking in the Shopify app store and we learned pretty quickly that, you know, the more installs you got, the more reviews you got, the higher your ranking, which led to more installs, which led to more reviews and it became this really great viral loop in the Shopify app store. That same algorithm didn't apply in the big commerce app store. They didn't have as much of an influence using reviews, for instance, as a, as a key sort of driver of ranking. There also wasn't the volume that you'd expect, like, you know, like I said, they've got orders of magnitude more merchants on Shopify than they do on big commerce. And so how you go to market has to change. You're dealing with larger, more established businesses. Their willingness to pay is much higher. The cost of acquisition is slightly different. The techniques that you're using are slightly different. So absolutely, there is a big difference in going to market for Shopify and sort of the mass market of those merchants and going after big commerce merchants. I'd say it, the gap closes slightly if you start to focus in on their larger enterprise clients, like on the Shopify Plus side of things and on the yeah. big commerce enterprise side, they become a little bit more in common than than the others. Okay. Love to pick up on that. You've mentioned a couple things. For example, you know, your hypothesis about churn would probably be low because backups are pretty sticky. And you just mentioned now reviews, installs as a couple of metrics or signals, if you will, that are showing traction. Were there other early signals in the data that you were looking at that helped you really know when to double down and kind of grow and invest in a certain area versus pivot and change direction? I'd say revenue would be another one. And I don't say that flippantly. Like we, when we first went to market in Shopify, our price point was five, fifteen, and $29. And that $29, the 20th store that installed Rewind was one of Shopify's top five largest stores. And so, you know, we very quickly realized that $29 for a store doing, you know, millions of dollars of, in orders a month, there's a bit of a disconnect in, in terms of value. And so we, we, we just kept testing a higher price point on that 29. So we went from 29 to 39 to 59 to 99 to 299 to 399 to 499. We ended up settling, um, at that time, we ended up settling on 299 as a max. We've, we've actually raised it since then. But, you know, that increase sort of 10x our highest price point, which helped revenue to grow. I'd say we were increasing installs, like all the metrics you look at, we were certainly tracking. But revenue was one where we were looking and saying, okay, how many customers do we have that are paying us $199, $299, $99 a month? Eventually, we ended up creating this metric that we call a high value install because one of the things we didn't want to optimize for was just a large number of merchants that weren't willing to pay. Obviously, with Shopify having you know hundreds of thousands and now millions of merchants, you could very easily build a service that attracts a large number of merchants who have no revenue for you, essentially. Maybe maybe you could get $3, $5, $9 a month, but it's not a very significant amount. So we created this metric called a high value install, which looked at, okay, 
is that customer going to pay us? I think it's over $39 a month or more. And how do we optimize our, our marketing programs to drive more of those high value installs? So the Shopify plus merchants or the merchants on Shopify's higher plans or big commerce enterprise customers, et cetera. And that focus in on that higher level, I think also helped us increase revenue. So let's let's dive in on that a little bit. Um, and and by the way, I love the idea that you started with this this churn LTV to LTV you know metric where churn is the denominator. Um, but if we if we dive in on churn and you look at not only a function of higher prices but also potentially as a function of larger customers, are you seeing correlations there? Um, if somebody is paying you more money, are you seeing a a group that is churning less, or is it really just a function of if they're a larger company, are they less likely to churn? I can imagine that your smallest of small customers are probably also the ones that are churning the most. Yeah, most of our churn actually happens because they leave the platform. And so those smaller customers are leaving Shopify, they're shutting down their store, they're leaving big commerce and shutting down their store. They're not an established business just yet. Right. The, the good news is because we price our e-commerce backups on the number of orders, they typically don't contribute a lot from a revenue perspective for us as well. So the churn rate on a logo perspective would be much, much higher than the revenue churn number. I hope that makes sense to the audience. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, that's a great point to, to track both of those because they're very different. We actually don't track the logo churn. You're right. You should maybe track both of them. But we've always, you know, any investors that we've talked to or anyone, we're like, listen, it's really irrelevant. There, there's going to be churn there. The number is not going to matter. All that really matters is are the customers that are successful sticking with Rewind on the longer term? And that has proven it to be true. So in answer to your question, like, yes, the larger merchants are sticking with us at a, at a higher rate or leaving less than the merchants that are less successful, let's say the size of the company versus um, the number of orders they've got. That would also be an interesting thing to check because some of the larger customers that may not have successful stores actually have internal policies or external certifications that they need to comply with, whether that be SOC 2 or ISO 27001, that say, look, we have to have a backup regardless of whether that is successful or not. Every system that we have has to have a backup for it. So we certainly have some very large customers that have either internal IT policies or external certifications that they have to um, abide by that require them to have a backup of every system they have. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, generally, if you have a lot of volume, you have predictability and stability. But I think the opposite is true for you as well, where you have governance uh, and policies that the largest organizations have to adhere to that also gives you stability and predictability. You're tracking gross MRR, churn. Is your pricing such that there's an upgrade opportunity? Is there a, a net dollar retention metric that you're tracking as well? Net dollar for us would be driven by the customers doing well. So on the e-commerce side, it's driven by the customers doing more sales on their store. And so as your store grows in volume, you, you are either charged an overage because you're exceeding the limits of your plan, or you have to upgrade to the higher level plan. There's also net dollar retention uh, benefits by selling other products. So Shopify customers, for instance, mm -hmm. are using Trello to manage their online store. So now we have backups for Trello. We can add on an additional service to that customer and grow their revenue that way. On the QuickBooks side and the GitHub side, we actually price it um, 
based on the units of backup in a way. So on the QuickBooks side, it's how many accounts does that bookkeeper have that are being backed up? So as their practice grows, our backups grow with them as long as they're connecting the new clients to, to back them up. And on the GitHub side, we price based on the number of repositories. So as the company adds more repositories to back up, then we increase our net dollar or retention that way. Yeah, super impressive and and uh, really gives you that growth potential to drive up, you know, net dollar retention up into the right. And things are looking, you know, f- phenomenal in terms of your growth. Um, was there a time when you were unsure about Rewind's future? And did you go back and rely on any data to kind of see where you should go next? I know Alan would say, like, you know, running a startup, it's just, it's a constant roller coaster of highs and lows. And I think one of the most difficult parts mentally is that those highs and lows sometimes happen literally on the same day. Mike, I empathize. I understand. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so are there times, you know, where we questioned what we were working on? Absolutely. You know, for our QuickBooks business, for instance, there was a time where we looked at it a couple of years ago and we're like, listen, this isn't growing at the rate we want it to. There's a competitor in the space. Let's talk to that person and see either if they're willing to sell us their business and we can acquire it, or maybe they would be willing to acquire ours and we can double down and focus in on e-commerce. And then Intuit happened to buy them instead and shut their app down. I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Our installs went through the roof. Our business is now growing at a rate that's probably three or four times what it was growing at before that acquisition. This is a year and a half or so, maybe two years now after the acquisition. So like, you know, we, we got totally lucky in that we had no influence on that happening. And absolutely, we were wondering, you know, what, what was the future we want? Did we want to double down on e-commerce where we were seeing the most growth? And do we want to go broad or, or what have you? And there's always those questions because it, with, with Rewind, you know, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on is kind of going against the grain and doing things that, that most people wouldn't do. If somebody tells me not to do something, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to be like doing that. And in this space, most people are doing backups for office Google and salesforce.com. That's where the majority of the focus is. And there's definitely an established market there. There are businesses that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, doing backups for Office 365 and Google. Now, when we first started and we said, okay, well, we want to be a backup company, but we don't want to do what the most popular ones are. There's this question of like, well, are they really needed? And why is Rewind virtually the only company that is not doing those platforms? And, and that's, you know, we've had to answer that question, like, since we started to, to investors, to employees, to prospective employees, like it's a, there's definitely been times where we thought like, man, are we, are we actually working on the most important thing here? Are we working on the right, are we working on the right thing? Well, I think what we've seen in the business generally, as we've sort of gone through it is the, if you look at like how much money you're adding on a, on a regular basis, like from a net new MRR perspective, let's say, it's not a straight line up. It's this roller coaster where like you, you go through a growth period and then you flatten out a bit. And it's almost like you're taking these step functions of like you figure out how to get to a new level of net new MRR. And then you level out for a bit because it's hard to grow. But you hire the right people, you figure out the next set of problems, then you grow again, and now you level out again. And now you got to figure out who else do you need now? How else can you grow? What are the next set of problems? And at least that's been sort of what we've seen. So these portions of time where you're going through the flat net new MRR. So your your percentage growth is likely decreasing, but you're still growing the business. Um, 
that's those are definitely times where you're looking at it and saying, okay, like what what are we doing here? Are we doing the right things? And that's when, yeah, you go back to your metrics and say, okay, where are we seeing success? So where are the installs coming from? Where's the net new MRR coming from? Where's the expansion coming from? You know, what do we need? How is churn looking? Absolutely. We have a fairly, I'd say, extensive dashboard that's tracking, you know, probably I, I think we're, we've sort of decided we're tracking too many metrics, but um, <laughs> we do review those on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, if, if I look at logically, from an outsider's point of view, the services that you have put in place, even though you're not going after the big or the obvious services, all of them do seem related. They seem to circle one another. So somebody who's using Trello might also be using QuickBooks or Xero. Um, somebody who's using Shopify may also be using Zendesk for their customer support. So there does seem to be a strategy in that this type of a customer is going to use these systems and Hopefully that manages to, to relate to your upgrade strategy as well. I think we would sort of agree with that point, but I think we can do a better job at identifying the other solutions that may be more important that aren't even on the radar of people right now. Like when in starting from Shopify, you you've you've anchored yourself on really the most important data set for a business, as long as that's an e-commerce business. There's really nothing that's as more important than their Shopify store. It's the, it's, you know, your customer data, your order data, your product mm -hmm. catalog, it's how your company generates revenue. And so it is far and away the number one, number one data set that you would want to back up. And number two is a long way behind that one. But I think as we, as we look forward and, and really based on what we've, we've seen from GitHub, you know, software is certainly important, but there are a lot of other services related to software that are also important or equally important to that data set for customers. And these tend to be larger businesses, a bit more established, more stringent security policies, et cetera, that are more likely to want to back up. So I do agree with you that like we, we do see some overlap on the platforms that we've backed up. I think GitHub tends to be the one that's a bit outside what we've done in the past. And it's actually one of the reasons we bought that company in January, because we were very, very excited as we looked into that platform and the services around it, we thought there was a really great potential to build a, a very, very large business doing backups for GitHub and, and ancillary developer tooling. Mike, let's switch gears a little bit. We've talked a little bit about the early years, you, the co-founders, the early employees, sort of the freemium, trying that out, sort of understanding the price levels. And then some pretty explosive growth, you know, and I'm a huge fan of that bootstrapped period before you go out and seek capital, um, really getting some evidence. And then when you're ready, leveraging that and going out to, uh, to raise some, some capital. Tell me a little bit about that process. You closed your A and your B in fairly close succession, a really massive B round, 65 million. So, you know, huge congrats on that. From a metric point of view, and we know that, you know, investors love metrics, were there certain metrics that were a must-have? They had to be the gold standard. Were there other metrics that the investors asked for that you thought were irrelevant? Um, which ones were different from A and B? So tell me a little bit about what, what were the investors thinking and, and what did you provide? That's a good question. When we raised our, so when we raised our A, we actually raised, it's funny that we have this reputation of being bootstrapped, um, which is sort of true. Although we've raised every single round, I think it's known to man. We've raised a friends and family, a pre-seed, a seed, a seed B, a series A, and a series B. Not all of those have been announced. 
okay. uh, publicly. Um, but I think generally speaking, the point that you're making is when we've raised that money, we've tried to raise as little money as possible. And right. all of those rounds that were relative to what the revenue was, they were very, very small amounts of, of capital that we were looking to raise. I'd say the exception to that was when we got into our Series A, and now the exception to that would be also the Series B that we recently raised. Almost exclusively, I think they're, they're looking for revenue growth, at least at the like, top end revenue growth. That was, I think, the number one metric was what, how fast is your revenue growing? What's your revenue at? How fast are you growing? About a year after we raised our, our, our seed round, we tried to raise an A round and we had metrics that were, you know, year over year growth for us was probably around 70% or so. And this is just six to nine months before the pandemic started, which was good enough to get you a meeting with investors, but not enough to get you a term sheet. They'll talk to you and they'll meet with you, but, but they're really looking for 100% year over year growth. And then when COVID hit, obviously, you know, our business has done extremely well with that as more people have gone online and revenue growth has accelerated. So I think top line revenue growth was really their number one metric that they were looking for. Yeah. And you're, and you're absolutely right. At that Series A level, 100% growth is just about the bottom floor. Like that's, that's the minimum. Yeah. And I'd say we were very efficient business. The, the company was actually profitable last June when you took into account some of the government funding that came from the COVID programs. So we, had, we were definitely, you know, under investing in the business. So our metrics of, um, you know, like magic number from a sales perspective, uh, rule of 40, those numbers for us were, were off the charts. Like they were way too good. CAC to LTV, payback period, you know, the, the numbers were, were ridiculously low for us. Clearly, I actually think it was, it was clearly showing that we were under investing in the business. Now, I think that's, that, that's, it's an interesting nuance there, right? Because I think those efficiency metrics are something that the investors value. Magic number, you know, rule of 40. I think they say, say, see that as a good thing, as an efficiency thing. But if you say to the investor, hey, we're profitable, that's almost irrelevant to them, right? But how efficient is the business? It's a slight nuance but it's, it's very different there. Well, the efficiency, I think, tells them that it, with the addition of new capital, you can grow the business and still end up at very good metrics. You know what I mean? Right, like exactly. if the rule of 40, let's say, is, is 80, well, just as a number, um, you can pour more money into sales and marketing and drive that number down from 80 to 40. You're still right. amazing. Like yeah. you're still doing great. Um, even if you're losing more money, as long as you can maintain that growth. So I think that was one thing that was certainly uh, advantageous for the for the A round was, well, yeah, they were looking at all those types of metrics. I think the A round, they looked at those metrics. The B round, I think, was, again, more focused on revenue growth, but probably more so on the potential. So the, the B round was led by Insight Venture Partners. Insight has a, a fairly extensive history in the backup space. They've invested in Veeam. They've invested in Own Backup. They've invested in Kaseya and others. Um, I think they they were they seem to be less focused on the metrics and more just on the massive potential of this business. When they started to see, oh, like you're actually growing this not just in e-commerce but in accounting, in developer tooling, in productivity with Trello. Um, you've hit a bunch of different verticals and all of those have, have different um, growth sectors that you could exploit to continue to grow the business. Right. So the, the vision, the vision has evidence of growth and that's where they saw the massive future potential. Yeah, exactly. It was more, uh, yeah, it was definitely more tangible and, and proven 
that it was not just an e-commerce backup story, that there was backup demand across a bunch of different verticals. And and that TAM really is just, you know, mammoth, right? When you look across <laughs> the different sectors, that, that got them excited. Yeah, I mean, that slide was just a bit, you know, on, on the pitch deck, it's just a bit ridiculous, right? When they're asking, <laughs> like, what's the TAM? And you're like, well, we're backing up the cloud. How I mean, let's cloud? just look, you know, we took, I think we took 10 applications just 10 of the, like, the popular apps and just put them out with the number of users they've got. And we're like, you know, here we are with, you know, like 20, 30,000 active customers, 100,000 customers have trusted us at one point and a total addressable market of like 100 million users or something. Like we're, we're, we're at a 0% market share, basically. Were there any new metrics that the investors brought to your attention that really provided some insight and you know you're still tracking today can't think of any offhand you know what that is the good and honest answer right <laughs> yeah i can't think of any uh you know they were they were very generous in giving us their investment memo afterwards and shared that with us and shared their thoughts with us on what you know what they were looking for and what was exciting to them about the business i can't I can't think right now that there was a metric, but I'm, I might be wrong on that, but I can't think of anything that we're actively tracking. Like I said earlier, though, like I'm a very metrics driven person. Our, our tracking is, um, is fairly extensive. As we were talking about Alaman before, who's our head of finance, who's like also very numbers driven. It, would be, um, it wouldn't be impossible for somebody to have a metric that we wouldn't know about or that we weren't tracking or that we didn't have a sense of, um, but it would, it would, it's unlikely that you know, we haven't figured out what's the important stuff to be tracking. The reverse of that then, were there any where you kind of cringe a bit and go, gosh, that's not really that important in our context, but yet everybody's asking me about it, where you just kind of get this, ugh, I, I wish we didn't have to talk about this metric. You roll your eyes a little bit. I thought the, you know, the efficiency metrics or like anything that was measuring efficiency for us was a bit off the scale. And it did seem to be that it was something where investors would tell you that they were very interested in the efficiency, but they 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 didn't want to see it um, continue to be that efficient. So I thought that was like that difference of like we're interested in this metric, we think it's great, but we're not necessarily interested in you continuing it. I thought that was interesting, although we talked about you know reasons for that. Yeah. The other part was the efficiency metrics were great, but the revenue growth was sort of at the bottom end, like it was sort of at that doubling range and some come, you know, some investors are looking for 150 or 200% year over year growth. So there was a bit of a, um, yeah, I guess there was a bit of a dichotomy where you'd get an interview, you'd get a, you'd get a meeting with them because of your efficiency metrics, but then they'd say, well, your revenue growth isn't very good. They're like, yeah, but that's why the efficiency metrics are so good. Right. And I, and I think that's often a, a founder's dilemma. Uh, I think founders are generally very cash aware. They have built the business. Often they have invested their own money into it. So efficiency and runway are something that founders often take a look at. And investors, of course, say, well, that's great. But you put the capital to, to use and turn that efficiency into into revenue growth. So, and as you said, I think that's that's exactly what they wanted you guys to do with those numbers. I think you're proving that that you can grow the business at a higher rate, right? Because if if you are super efficient, that's great, but that doesn't necessarily prove that you have go to market channels that you can spend more money and that can really accelerate the growth. And so there, there's that uncertainty from the investor standpoint of like, okay, well, we give you the capital, but do you know how to spend it? Mm -hmm. Do you know where it can go? This is not a, um, it's not a, a growth machine just yet, maybe. 
You've mentioned, Mike, some of your habits. You're pretty data-driven. You've got a good dashboard. You're tracking a lot of things and using those as signals. If we shared the phrase, succeed with data uh, with you, that really is you know, Clipfolio's mission at, at its heart uh, to enable founders, to enable uh, business folks to succeed with data. What does that mean to you as a founder? Succeed with data to me would mean um, using your data to drive better business decisions and leveraging the numbers to understand where's the business doing well, where do you need to improve it, what's not working, what investments have you made that are panning out, what investments have you made that are not panning out, where should you double down, where should you cut, what changes should you make in your business. The information that you're getting from all the metrics that you track, I think, is driving sort of longer-term investment decisions of where to where to deploy this capital. And thinking about that and thinking about your journey, the ups and downs and the lessons learned, if you were to give some advice to new founders, uh, startup leaders, what would that be? I think we've done generally, you know, I, I have a hard time ever second guessing what we've done because I think I, I'm a big believer that, you know, you, you can't really look back on time and, and second guess yourself. You made the best decision that you had with the data that was in front of you or how you were feeling at the time. Um, I guess if if you're running a business that has just, you know, very, very efficient SaaS metrics, don't don't hesitate to raise money, whether that be, you know, I preferably probably through equity, but even through debt funding to try and grow that business. I think we 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 erred on the side of being too efficient. To be honest with you, like our metrics, when we looked at them, we were like, okay, this is ridiculously efficient. And there really is no benefit to being, you know, let, let's say just as, let's say your magic number, let's say should be one. And if your magic number is four, you don't get a benefit from an investment standpoint to be at a four. You would be great at a one, <laughs> but it doesn't matter if you're a one or a four. It, they don't really care. You don't, there's no, there's no benefit that you get there. It's really sort of top line growth. So I think a lot of our metrics were just over indexed to efficiency and you don't, you don't get the, the multiples that you, that you were looking for when you were an efficient business. So really focus on growth, focus on raising money, assuming you've got this, you know, very healthy business, but that's where it all starts really at the, at the end of the day, it's, you need a great business. And if you build a great business, then you shouldn't hesitate to raise money to, to grow it. Mike, I want to send a huge thank you your way on your story, on leaning in, taking risks, looking at the data, and, and just believing in the future. Thank you again, and thank you, Lauren, as well. If you enjoyed today's conversation about metrics and data, be sure to check out Metric HQ, our online resource for the metrics that matter most to you and your business.